Hey everybody, it's Brad here. Before we get started with the show today, I wanted to take a minute and let you guys know about our coaching program we run here at Macros Inc. We believe that every person on the planet deserves to live their healthiest and best life. A qualified nutrition coach and personal trainer can be the key to living that life. At Macros Inc., we provide fully customized one-on-one nutrition coaching and online personal training that has changed the lives of 10,000 people and counting. We offer a two-week free trial for our nutrition coaching, and you can get started risk-free today. Just go to macrosinc.net slash services and sign up. Let's get into the show. Episode number eight, season two, a little slow on rolling episodes out this year, but that's what happens when things get crazy. Today, we're talking about the role of macros in weight loss, uh, why the fitness industry has been fragmented, and what bringing it together means for the end consumer, and how even if you never have perfect information, you have to act anyway. Let's get into the show. So for our nutrition segment today, I want to just kind of do a little bit of a dive into some concepts beyond kind of calories in, calories out, right? We've talked about that on the show a lot today, and it really is kind of the core principle that drives um, all of like weight loss and weight gain, right? We've talked about that indefinitely, but there's layers below that that actually affect things like how many calories you consume in a day and how many calories you output in a day. Um, And some of those things start to actually matter as you get into fat loss and weight loss. And I just kind of want to just talk through kind of the different macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fats, and some of the things to consider like as you're constructing your own weight loss approach, right? Um, we talked about, we've talked about probably in a bunch of episodes about how it doesn't really matter what your macronutrient ratio is, like how much protein, how much carbs, how much fat you have for weight loss from a calorie perspective, and that's 100% true, right? We've looked at studies that have looked at Very low protein, very high protein, very low fat, very high fat, very low carb, very high carb. When you control for calories, weight loss is pretty even across the board. But what's interesting is when you go into the real world and you don't have highly controlled environments, the macronutrients you consume can have some effects that over the long term and even from a habit perspective may affect really how adherent you are, how much you're able to exercise, your recovery. And a lot of these things that start to matter as you start to think about weight loss over, you know, days, weeks, months, and years, and especially as you start to get in less controlled environments. So I want to talk a little bit about protein, carbs, and fat specifically for weight loss. So when we talk about protein, you know, many people think of protein as a muscle building nutrient, um, but it's just as important for weight loss, if not more important. Really, of the three macronutrients, protein is probably the one that you want to optimize the most and you want to give the most focus and credence to when you're kind of constructing any sort of like dietary approach to lose weight. So during a diet, you know, you're eating in a calorie deficit. When you're losing weight, you really have to be burning more energy than you're taking in. And so when you think about protein, um, when you consume protein, you actually can help keep muscle turnover at a favorable balance. So this ensures that as you lose energy, 
you're retaining as much muscle mass as you can while you're losing body fat, right? So when we looked at studies, you know, of people who are in a calorie deficit, and we can measure that by energy expenditure and energy intake and weight loss over time, people who have a higher protein intake, like let's say it's closer to that, you know, one gram per pound versus let's say like half a gram per pound, the people who have the higher protein intake generally lose less lean body mass. So specifically like skeletal muscle and even some bone tissue during periods of weight loss than people who have a very low protein intake. That actually matters over the long term and not necessarily from like a keeping your metabolism high, um, but just from like a body composition perspective and aging perspective, those things matter. Uh, the other perspective is protein is really the most energetic, requires the most energy to digest, meaning your body burns more calories from digesting protein when it com- than it compares to consuming carbs and fat. Um, this is kind of the, the joke that we always make is like the meat sweats. Um, protein does require more energy to break down. Now, it's not a huge amount more, right? It, it's not like it's hundreds of calories, but in a given day, if you're eating you know, a much higher protein diet, you maybe will expend 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 calories-ish a day just because you have a higher protein intake. Now, that, that's very minimal, but over the course of, kind of everything else you're doing, that little bit matters. So when we think about protein and weight loss, you know, sparing lean body mass is a huge benefit to it um, and why you should probably have a higher protein intake. And any little bit helps. So if you can get an extra 20, 30 calories a day of energy expenditure from having a higher protein intake, that's also going to be beneficial. Um, another reason that we think about protein and weight loss is satiety, right? On average, most protein sources are more filling than most f- carbohydrate and fat sources. So that means there's some protein sources that may be less satiating than some carbohydrate and fat sources. But on average, if you take protein, most protein sources provide more satiety than carbs and fats. And so that's a very important thing for hunger management, right? If I'm going to eat let's say 200 calories of food, and I don't want to deal with hunger, if I eat 200 calories of just carbs and fats, and I don't eat any protein, my ability to stay full is impaired compared to to everybody else, or compared to uh, um, if I'm consuming like a very protein-rich diet. Um, So those are kind of the three things to really think about and really some of the main reasons that we actually use higher protein intakes, um, especially when people are dieting, right? We need to maintain lean body mass. Uh, we really need to kind of have some tools for satiety. And then if we can get a little bit of extra caloric expenditure um, from the thermic effect of food, that actually does you know, have some benefit. Um, let's talk a little bit about you know, carbohydrates. So when we look at the role of carbohydrates in weight loss, and specifically fat loss, carbohydrates themselves, apart from fiber, um, and we'll talk about that in a different episode, doesn't really seem to impact weight loss um, any differently than dietary fat. So once protein targets are met, carbohydrate and fat ratios can vary considerably with little to no difference. Um, now here's where we get you know, a little bit... Where 
we have to have a little bit of nuance to that, right? If you are an athlete or you have a very high workload, you need to prioritize fueling for that workload, right? So let's say you've, you've met your protein intake and you're somebody who's a marathon runner, a cyclist, you work out in the gym two hours a day, you play basketball, you play a lot of soccer, you're very active. The next priority should be consume enough carbohydrates to fuel your performance and your training and your recovery, right? But once you do that, consuming more than that doesn't really increase caloric expenditure. It doesn't really do much for lean body mass. Um, it doesn't really do, there's no more additional benefits, so to speak. Um, on the other side of it, you know, there are some carbohydrate foods that are lower calorie and more filling. So if I think about carbohydrate-rich foods in a diet that you can use in weight loss, um, you know, you have things like fruits, you have things like um, green leafy vegetables, you have a lot of things. Those are all carbohydrate foods, right? But they have a lot of nutrients. Um, they generally have a lot of fiber. They usually have a high like food volume to calorie ratio. Um, and so really, carbohydrates and weight loss and how we think about them from like a macro, macronutrient perspective is consume enough to fuel your training and your recovery. And those can be, you know, from things like starchy foods, whether it's rice, potatoes, pasta, um, even some carbohydrate fruits like um, bananas, things like that. Um, once you've done that, the rest of your carbohydrates should probably be focused around um, the nutrient aspect of it, right? Can I get some vegetables? Can I get some fruits? Things that have vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, they're higher fiber, they're higher water content, they're higher food volume. Um, so that's really a big component of it. Um, and that also goes into that kind of second component goes into kind of the satiety piece, right? Generally speaking, after protein, carbohydrates are generally more satiating than, than fats, right? They're less energy dense, they have higher food volume, um, and they're higher on the satiety scale. So then let's talk a little bit about um, fats for weight loss. Fats similar in importance to carbohydrates um, in the fact that really the calories can be interchangeable except for if you have very like high workloads, right? You can't really use high fat diets to fuel very high intensity, very high volume exercise. Um, and I think we've talked about that on the podcast, but we'll have another deep dive into one of those. Um, on the other side of the coin, higher fat, lower carb ratios um, may provide some psychological benefit to people very early in kind of weight loss phases, right? When you adopt that, um, you get a lot of very quick water weight loss. And that's because low carb diets really cause like a lot of glycogen depletion from your muscles, which means you kind of lose stored carbohydrates and you lose water, right? So that can actually be kind of a psychological win for some people. If they're like, hey, I really need to lose four pounds in the first two weeks, so I feel like something's happening. It's like, okay, the first couple of weeks, maybe let's kind of lower carbohydrate intake fairly low so we can get some quick wins. Um, but when we look at, you know, overall, eating more or less fats in relation to carbohydrates really makes no difference in terms of long-term weight loss in kind of all lines of research when we assume that, you know, calories and protein are pretty equal. 
So for most standard diets, really once protein is met and fat is kind of set at a healthy level for hormone production, which we don't really know what that exactly is. We just know that very low fat diets for long periods of time can cause issues. Um, it generally tends to be more apparent in women than men, but even that research is still a little kind of iffy. Um, but basically once your carbohydrate or once your protein levels are met and kind of your fats are set at like a healthy level for those hormone productions, your remaining calories can be kind of any macro, right? So if you enjoy higher fat foods, maybe shift more of your, your macronutrients for weight loss to be more fat. If you prefer more carbohydrates, um, you know, that's also an option too. And really kind of think about how active am I? Um, what type of foods do I enjoy? How do I handle like different satiety levels of foods? Um, and, and what does that really mean for me long term? So those are kind of the ways to think about it, right? Is protein is probably a great lever for maintaining lean body mass, promoting satiety, and maybe getting some very small benefit from a thermic effect of food. Carbohydrates and fats can be relatively interchangeable, um, just with the caveat that if you're highly active, make sure you're consuming enough carbohydrates to fuel your training and recovery. From a calorie control perspective, um, both from like an energy density, like fats just have more calories per gram, but also just some of the inherent, inherent like properties of the foods themselves, carbohydrates tend to be a little bit better at promoting satiety and they reduce your likelihood of drastically overconsuming, as long as those carbohydrate sources are kind of generally speaking, kind of whole food, quote, healthy sources of food, right? You're consuming a lot of like root vegetables, um, like whole grains, fruits, veggies, etc. Now, if your carbohydrate sources are like a bunch of candy and a bunch of like highly processed foods, that's probably, you're probably going to lose the benefit of like higher satiety carbohydrate foods. And you're just going to get very energy dense carbohydrate foods. Fats, make sure that you consume enough. Um, probably the minimum is about 10% of your total calories should be fats. It can be anywhere from like 10 to 25, 30% of your diet can be from dietary fats in that window. And you're probably going to find the sweet spot of like, hey, I don't have super energy dense foods. I get enough fats that I enjoy my food um, and you're probably okay. So that's just like a very high level brief overview of the macronutrients and weight loss and how I think most people should think about it. So you have a lot of freedom and flexibility and exactly what you decide to use um, as you're kind of constructing a diet for weight loss, right? And this is like when I do macro checks in our group, um, which if you're, if you're not a member of our Facebook group, just go to Facebook and look up Macros Inc. I think it's facebook.com slash groups slash Macros Inc. I think is maybe the URL. Um, but we do free macro checks in there. And so this is kind of the hierarchy I think about it. Somebody posts their stats, um, their life, what they do, how much they work out. And these, this is the kind of order I think about it. I'm like, okay, who is this person? How much lean body mass do they probably have based on their current numbers? Let's set a protein target that's probably easy to achieve, but kind of maximizes lean body mass retention, maximizes the satiety piece. And then I'm like, okay, how active is, is this person? Do they have a physical job? Yes, no. Okay, let me think about that. How much do they train? Okay, one day a week, five days a week, seven days a week. Are they doing mostly just like weightlifting or are they an endurance athlete? And then I'll kind of 
look at the carbohydrate ratio they should be in, right? So if it's somebody who they're on their feet for their job all day, they train six days a week, they do a mixture of weightlifting and they run two, three times a week, right? They're going to be slightly higher. More of their calories are going to go to carbohydrates and less are going to go to fats. If they're, if they have a desk job, if they work out two to three days a week, and it's mostly like just go to the gym and kind of do a 60-minute weightlifting session, we're probably going to be slightly lower on the carbohydrate component, and we're probably going to be slightly higher on the fat component. Um, and that's going to be the way that we think about that. So that's, a, that's it for the nutrition overview. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into the business segment. Jumping into the business segment, uh, man, this past week really makes me feel like I should kind of revisit a lot of the the Peloton beach body discussion just with everything going on in the stock market. Um, but I kind of want to save that for the next episode because I want to see how a couple things shake out this week. And then I've got a bunch of follow-up and a bunch of ideas there. But I wanted to kind of just take a step back and talk about the fitness industry as a whole. Um, and I was having a conversation with somebody, yeah, this must have been a couple months ago. Um, but something that's really I've been thinking about a lot lately is when we look at the fitness industry, the health, fitness, wellness industry in general, it's maybe one of the most highly fragmented industries that's out there, especially when we think about products and services. Maybe the most analogous one that I can think of that's as fragmented is kind of the um, like the consumer product good beverage space, right? So when I think about the fitness industry, we are definitely one of the top most fragmented economic industries that there are, right? When, and when I think about that, what I mean is like everybody on the planet has some sort of like health journey that their body goes through, right? Either good, bad, whatever. Like they're born, they're biological health changes over their life and then they die right so everybody's kind of on this path some people decide to take action and kind of control the trajectory of that path and some don't and so our industry kind of focuses mostly on the people who at some point try to control that path and that journey that their kind of physical and mental health takes over the course of their life and what's interesting is our our industry, the consumers and the businesses both work together to kind of create these very fragmented, very tribal groups of consumers, right? And I'll talk about that from both perspectives. If you look at, let's take the, let's take both the nutrition and the exercise industries together. When we look at the nutrition industry, there's basically companies that come to market based on like core theses about how nutrition should work for people, right? You have Weight Watchers, you have Jenny Craig, you have Slim Fast, you have Herbalife, you have um, all of the, the keto-based companies, you have the Whole30s. And basically, everybody kind of takes a thesis of, here is my productized version of how nutrition should be. And then I'm going to try to tell everybody this is the best and only way to do it. 
And then I'm going to create this subculture within the consumers that that's basically what that they should do and buy and believe and stick to it. There's, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 of these different identities that happen. On the other side, consumers gravitate towards this, right? They find an identity in it. Um, They find people that are like them and they kind of build their own communities. And so there's this kind of both sides of the the free market that kind of contributes to this very fragmented, tribalized um, approach. Same thing happens in kind of the exercise, right? You have the power lifters, the Olympic lifters, the CrossFitters, the um, the like just standard gym goers, the aerobics people. Um, you have the cyclists, the runners. Like we all kind of find our own niche and we kind of build product services around that. And what's very interesting is we're maybe one of the only industries that hasn't had a company that's come in and really monopolized and kind of like conglomerated a lot of these different things under one roof. I'll kind of go into the the tech and apparel space to kind of give some analogies. So when I think about consumer behavior and I think about kind of tribal slash group behavior, one example would be Let's look at um, smartphones, right? We have basically the same thing, but in a much less fragmented industry of smartphones, right? You have iPhones and you have Android phones. That's really it. Like there's really no other option for people to go to. That's still highly like tribalized and community driven, but it's two groups, right? Um, The fitness industry hasn't found a way to kind of coalesce into two, three, four, five. We still have, you know, dozens and dozens of dozens. What's been interesting though is there has been at least a few companies that have found some success in doing this in the fitness apparel space in the fitness consumer product goods space. So let me take for example, we have um companies like Lululemon, right? Honestly, like black spandex leggings were not really a thing um, until you have companies like that that kind of make a trend and they basically gather most of the kind of female fitness apparel space, right? Um, You have places in the consumer product goods that start to do the same thing, right? And it's much easier because in that space because Developing physical products, getting mass market adoption, and then sustaining them is a much different kind of model and how you acquire customers than if you're kind of just in like a digital service space. So that's been like just super interesting to watch and think about. So now I want to kind of revisit the the fragmentation and then kind of what bringing it all together means for the end consumer. So here's kind of my perspective and this is maybe like my pipe dream for what macros it could be someday is there's two things that have to happen in order for there to be some kind of conglomeration slash coalescing in the fitness industry to defragment it and kind of bring everybody into it to a more kind of cohesive mindset. One is you have to find a company 
that's willing to understand the consumer base and bring them all of the tools under one roof initially, right? No matter what you do from day one when you start out as a business, you're never going to be able to capture all the audiences and service them at the same time, at the same level, right? Like you can't come out as a company and be like, oh, I'm going to be a keto company and a paleo company and a macros company and a Whole30 company and a Weight Watchers company and an et cetera. But what you can do is you can kind of focus on the core principles and start building narratives around those core principles and slowly expanding your audience. And what you can also do is you can kind of develop education, messaging, um, products, services that start to kind of grab at the periphery of all of those different groups and kind of just slowly bring those people into a common understanding of like, hey, here's some great things about paleo that work because of this. Here's some great things about keto that work because of this. Here's some great things about X that work. Here's some other ways you can think about it. And then over time, you slowly start to grab those people. And then what you want to do is you want to bring them all into kind of one community of people that's very diverse, that has a lot of different things. And then you want to find ways of using their kind of core beliefs, but also pulling them into what their true narrative is, right? Um, And so I think what you can do is if you can find a way to do that, what you can what you really can do is you can kind of take the truth of what we know about health, fitness, nutrition, um, and you can start to take those ideas and package them into what people are already doing and already believing, right? So let's just say Macros Inc. is the the source of truth in the world and we are the we're the Amazon of fitness. And I just say that because like just imagine we're so big that we everybody knows who we are. And we realize that like, hey, there's going to be a group of our kind of core customers who take everything that we say at face value and everything that we say is true. Then you're going to have the groups of people who have all these different identities. And our goal isn't to like fundamentally change everything they believe. But what our goal is to is let's take what they believe and then frame it in what's like actually true, real, helpful, and sustainable. Right? So let me take the let me take the like the most extreme versions. Like, let's take the carnivore crowd, right? Um, that group of people who've currently kind of adopted that. Let's say we bring them into under the roof of like, you know, an unfragmented industry where it's like, hey, great, this is kind of what you guys are believing and thinking, and you know, here's the best way to go about doing it and the considerations you should have. And then when you're ready to kind of pull back from that and go into something here, here's the transition piece. The same thing with somebody who's doing, you know, like a Weight Watchers approach or who's doing all these things. So I guess the core thesis here is if you can start to slowly defragment the industry and bring it under kind of a more common understanding and roof, whether it's one company, five companies, um, whatever, you can start to take some of these more extreme niche groups that you know, probably over the long term, don't benefit the overall health of a group of people. Um, you can start to just build some truths into what they are doing. And you can start to then give them a better version of what they're currently doing, right? So I would imagine, um, and not to just keep picking on the same group of people, but let's say we take, you know, 
let me just imagine I have an email list of 300 million people. And I know that in that email list, I have, you know, 250,000 people who are like this extreme version of that diet. And then we have another million who are an extreme version. And I can send them targeted messages of like, hey, here you're doing, you guys are doing carnivore diet. Here's some of the things that you might experience over your first six, 12 months. Here's some things to consider. Here's how we can maybe bring you into a little less of an extreme approach and you can start to enjoy your life again. Here's some additional things how you can, you know, uh, have sustainable results after your initial results. And then over the course of six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, 36 months, that customer journey starts to get kind of exposed to a much larger education base and a much larger consumer journey. And then they end up kind of more towards the middle and kind of under a common common understanding of the entire kind of consumer base in the industry. Um, and that, that can happen with kind of everything. So I guess the core thesis here is one of the benefits of defragmenting our industry and kind of building more kind of vocal leaders and people who can really kind of help control a more coherent narrative, we're not always going to be right. You're not going to have all the answers. But what you might be able to do is actually develop a much more consistent message across the entire landscape, right? And I think that's one of, one of the big goals and kind of big impediments to having, I think, probably a more, a better long-term trajectory for the health of a population is right now, I think a lot of people lack a lot of confidence in what people believe is true and accurate, right? I think if you ask a lot of people, they'll be like, well, I don't really know what to believe because the narrative changes so much. I don't think that the narrative of what's true has changed that much. I think what happens is the cyclical nature of products and services and businesses that try to kind of create something new and hot in the market and ride trends starts to override kind of what we know to be true. And so it starts to create more kind of fake volatility in the truth and what's actually there. So I don't know if that helped anybody, but that's kind of the way that I think about some of the business things that are that go on in the fitness industry and kind of why it's been fragmented. And then what bringing it together means for kind of the end consumer. And my view is a less fragmented industry is actually much better for the end consumer in the long run, because I think we get more truth and more efficacy out of the products and services that actually get given to people when we all kind of work closer to the truth than we do closer to the fringe. So um, that's it for the Business Insight. We'll take one more quick break and then we'll come back for the last segment of the show. Welcome back. That was a very nice elevator music break. Um, let's talk about what am I learning today? Uh, so th the kind of thesis here on this is you never have perfect information, but you have to act anyway. 
and this is just kind of inspired slash born out of a conversation that I was having with uh, with Jay the other night. He actually is here in Spokane for most of the summer, so him and I have been just spending a lot of time together, you know, grabbing dinner. Um, and so we were talking the other night at dinner just about how kind of a couple of things. One is obviously since 2020 and, you know, even right now, there's a lot of kind of uncertainty in the world um, and kind of how that changes behavior. And we're also just talking about kind of the journey of Macros Inc. And, um, you know, how a lot of times we just, we don't know everything. And so we were just, we were talking a lot about economy and business and stuff like that. And one of the things that kind of came up is like, there's so many things that are so multifactorial and just like so complicated that you're never going to have perfect information, right? I think about, you know, what's going on in the stock market right now and interest rates and, um, you know, commodity prices and inflation and, and all these things. And we, we were kind of talking about like, what's going to happen, what's the projection. And, you know, we kind of had like some different views on what we think the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months, and then five years and 10 years look like. And it was, we kind of both were just like, it's all prediction and we never have perfect information. Like even if I had all the information of what's actually true and going on right now, I also don't know what's going to happen in six months, right? Some other major world event could happen that pushes us in one direction or the other. And the same thing happens with a business, right? I mean, I just think about, you know, I think we had really, um, I had like left my full-time career um, at the end of 2019, 2020. And I think I took like my first real quasi paycheck from Macros Inc. in like early 2020. Um, and then March hit in uh, 2020 with all the pandemic stuff and like basically everything went to zero very quickly. And like, we didn't know it was going to happen, but like we had to make decisions based on the information that we had at the time and what we thought was going to happen. I think a lot of us end up in that situation with multiple aspects of our life, right? Whether you own a business, whether you have a family, whether you have careers, whether you're buying a car, whether you're buying a house, like whatever you're doing, I think it's really important to realize you're never going to have perfect information. You're never going to have a perfect information of like the current situation you're in, and you're never going to have perfect insight into what's going to happen in the future. But that doesn't mean you can't act and you shouldn't act or you don't have to act, right? It's also important to remember that inaction is a decision in and of itself, right? If you decide to not do something, that's that decision has a consequence, right? Um, and so... I just think one of the things that I've had to learn to embrace and is really uncomfortable for me is I'm never going to know what's actually going to happen, but I have to make a decision anyway. That means from like, hey, if I think about Macros Inc., like, hey, we've grown quite a bit over the last couple of years. Here's where we're at. Like, what's the next phase for us? I don't know what's going to happen to the world economy, right? I don't know what's going to happen to the Google search algorithms. I don't know what's going to happen to Facebook algorithms. I have no idea what's going to happen with. Um, you know, iOS and how we can actually like track people who visit our website and retarget them. Um, I have no idea what the effect of large corporate spending is going to be on like cost per click advertising. Like our company is going to take their remaining capital, double down and try to buy more customers so they can generate more cash flow. Are they going to completely stop spending? And so maybe online 
you know, cost per click is going to drop? I have no idea. I don't know any of these things. But what you can do is you can build a model around what you think is going to happen and you can make decisions. And then you can have a plan to adjust and pivot whether those decisions are working or they're not working. I think about this, you know, in the context of a lot of our clients, right? Um, I don't know 100% how your body's going to respond to a given workout that we do. I don't know 100% how your body's going to respond to a certain calorie and kind of macronutrient target. I don't know how your body is going to respond to, you know, stress you have at work. But what I do know is here's some core principles of how things should happen. Here's the plan. Here's all the action we're going to take. And then here's how we're going to adjust based on the information we get back. Right. And that's kind of how we work with all of our clients is like, here's the core principles we understand about human physiology, nutrition, exercise, um, weight loss. Here's what should happen. Here's the plan of, that we're going to do. And if we get data that suggests that what we're doing isn't working, we're going to stop, we're going to reevaluate, and we're going to kind of move forward. And I kind of try to take the same approach with like my personal life as much as I can. Um, and then also kind of the business, right? Is I think about, okay, what is our budget at Macros Inc. going to look like over the next two quarters? What's it going to look like over the next six quarters, eight quarters, 12 quarters? And what can we budget for? Where should we start pushing into? Where should we start leaning into? And then what are kind of the key metrics that I'm going to use for success? Um, and so I think that's just kind of the, the what am I learning today is really start to embrace the uncertainty and just realize like, hey, nobody knows. The hedge fund managers don't know what's going to happen to the market tomorrow. Um, you know, all the congressmen, senators, they don't know what's going to happen to the geopolitical stage. Um, you can't predict what's going to happen over the next 6, 12 months of your personal life. You don't, you can't predict exactly what's going to happen in your job. But what you can do is you can take the best information you have, you can make a plan, and then you can take action on it. Um, and so that's my, what am I learning today? So that's it for the show today. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, sorry that we have not put out an episode in a couple of weeks, but we are back and we're rolling. And now that it's summer and things are slightly less crazy, we'll be rocking these out quite a bit. So anyway, that's it. I'm Dr. Brad. I will see you guys later. Thank you so much.